We all can be seated. As I mentioned, we're going to be learning about Barnabas this morning, which is very exciting. Um, we're continuing our Founders series, which we've been doing all summer. And, uh, you know, I signed up to do, uh, to do Barnabas, um, which is really exciting because I'd always heard a lot about Barnabas. Like I've been told, oh, every Paul needs a Barnabas and a Timothy, somebody on your level and somebody underneath you. So I thought, oh my gosh, there's going to be so much information. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> there's not a ton of information about Barnabas, but we see in his life a model that's inspiring for us to follow. And I'm really excited to talk about that. But what I want to do first is I want to give an additional announcement. So um, for those of you who uh, maybe you've been worshiping at Grace for a very long time, or maybe you just started today, by the way, welcome. We're very glad you're here. Um, One of the things that is our pride, it's our glory, is to send people from our congregation overseas. Like we want so badly to be a sending church. We have a ton of people, not just college students, but adults and also high school students that are overseas right now. So on Friday, uh, we had 11 juniors and seniors in high school that are involved in our youth group um, jump on a plane, go across the pond, and now they're in the UK. And uh, they are serving, they're ministering, they're sharing the gospel in word and in deed in a culture that's kind of past Christianity. They're kind of like, that was a great folk religion back in the day, but we've all kind of moved past it. We realize, oh, it's not true. There's nothing to it. That's the culture they're in. And we're so proud of these juniors and seniors because for the entire semester, they've been learning. What does it look like to do ministry, to share the gospel and word and deed to these students? How do we navigate political conversations? How do we navigate um, the fact that they think our faith is discredited scientifically and otherwise? How do we do that? So they've been equipping themselves all semester long. We're so proud of them. But another reason I bring that up, one is I want us to pray, and we're going to pray shortly, but uh, what I want for us to do is I want us to just kind of sit with the reality that teenagers, and we have all the jokes about teenagers, we have teenagers that are going overseas. So whatever obstacles we may have, whatever personal barriers we may think through, oh, I can't go overseas because I'm not qualified. Because I just need to get to this point in life, and then I'll be ready to go overseas. Whatever it is, but we have that urging. And these juniors and seniors, as they're bearing witness to Christ in the UK, they're bearing witness to us, that all you got to do is say yes and put one foot in front of the other. So I want for us for a few seconds to pray for uh, these students that are overseas. So bow with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you that the young teach the old. Thank you that... um, uh, you know, we remember Paul saying to Timothy, hey, don't, look, don't let people look down on you because you're young. You have a role to play. You have a leadership role to fill. So thank you for the ways that these teenagers said yes to following you. Help us, Lord, as we think through what our next steps are. Help us to follow them. Whether that's going overseas or going next door, help us to have a posture of saying yes, following your prompt. Lord, we pray for them that their ministry would be fruitful. We pray for them that they would be unified as a team. We pray for them that they would use the training and be filled with the Holy Spirit to preach your gospel in word and deed. And Lord, we are excited to hear about all the work that you're going to do in and through them. We give thanks in Christ's name. Amen. So we're continuing our talk on Barnabas this morning. As I mentioned, we don't know much about him, so let's take a look at what we do know about Barnabas. He's known as the son of encouragement. In fact, the word Barnabas means Son of encouragement. So Acts 4.36, this is like the entirety of like the biographical information we have on Barnabas. You ready? 
It's extensive. Now Joseph, so his real name is Joe. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Like that's it. In fact, most of what we know about him actually happens through the ministry, through the work that he's going to continue to do. And a lot of what we know about him is through his affiliation with Paul. He accompanies Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And that's kind of all we get. But the most important thing about him, in fact, kind of his identity, his reputation, is that he's encouraging. So much so that he's given a nickname, Son of Encouragement. So we get to these uh, situations where we don't know much about, uh, about Barnabas. And so we have to kind of fill in the blank. So uh, was Barnabas encouraging because he was an Enneagram 2? You know, he put himself down to uplift others. And um, for those of you who don't know what Enneagram is, it's a, it's, an, it's a personality thing. Somebody has already diagnosed you at this point in your life. Just go with it. So was he an Enneagram 2 where he put himself down uplifted others. It's in Myers-Briggs world is he an ENFP where he can kind of walk into a room, feel the temperature and kind of tell, how's everybody doing? And knows how everybody's doing and can say the words to the right people uh, as an encouragement. Is he a Labrador? Is he a sanguine? Is he the color green? Whatever it is, we have no idea. We don't know. This is what we got. But his reputation was an encourager. Was he somebody who had a childhood where his parents, parents so uh, lavishly loved him, just set up his entire world and protected him his entire life to where he walks about in this world just with smiles and everything is rainbows and silver linings? We don't know. Or was he the person who had love withheld from him and so he encourages other people as a tool to get people to stay close to him? We don't know. What we know is that he had the reputation of being an encourager. So we can get to these type of series where we're learning about somebody, such as a son of encouragement, and we can say, okay, yeah, well, that's great for Barnabas. That's wonderful. He's wired a certain way. But what's that mean about me? Do I have to be somebody that's known as an encourager to other people? Or is that just for him? I think we all know the answer. It's it's, it's for all of us. No, we're not supposed to have nicknames, son of encouragement, daughter of encouragement. That's not the goal. The goal would be that our reputation would be that we are encouraging to other people. So this morning, I want to make the case. It's for all of us. We all ought to be known as encouragers. But then also, I want to tweak. When we think about people that are encouraging, I just want to tweak the way we think about that. What is biblical encouragement? What model does Barnabas show us that we can follow? So first, who are we supposed to be all, are, are we all supposed to be encouraging? We look at John fourteen sixteen. So uh, you may remember the scene, Jesus, um, uh, he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, look, I got to go. Heaven's at the right hand of the father. Um, and he's saying, I have to do this. Like, you don't want me to stay here with you. You want me to sit at the right hand of the father because my spirit is going to be given. Um, and y'all are going to do mighty things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen when I'm around you. So he says in John 14, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, that he may be with you. Now, the reason I have paraclete in parentheses there, that's the same word that we have uh, with Barnabas. He is the son of Paracleo. He's a son of encouragement. Jesus is saying that the father is going to give us an encourager. So what does this look like? 
Well, I know in times that I have been uh, nourished, that I've been encouraged, that I've been challenged. Sometimes that happens. I'm sitting in my office or, uh, or outdoors, cabin in Estes Park, and I'm just kind of like, it's me and the Lord and the Bible, and I'm reading through it, and it's just filling me. Like, I will sit and I'll stew on something, deeply meditate. This happens every once in a while, by the way, but it's not like a daily occurrence, but I'm just so captivated. Uh, and then it usually results in me just staring blankly in space, because up here, I'm going, I'm going, but out here, I'm gone. So uh, sometimes it happens personally, okay, where it's the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and, and, and me. But more often than this, it's actually the people of God. It's believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, participating in the encouraging work of the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, speaking to, challenging, urging, encouraging me to move forward in my walk uh, and in my path with Christ. So sometimes it happens individually, but sometimes it happens corporately. What does that mean? All of us here. All of us, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whenever we trust Christ for salvation, for abundant life now, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we partner with the Spirit's work in the world. We partner as the Spirit is the helper and the advocate. We partner in that mission. Or we consider what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, every day, like as long as it's called today, encourage one another. It's deeply vital. Participate in the Spirit's work in the world. Are we supposed to be encouragers? Absolutely. But we come to a we come to a a, um, kind of a crossroad. We come to a question where we say, "Okay, I'm thinking about encouraging people in my life, and there's like caricatures that come up for me, at least. I think of these caricatures, and the greatest illustration of a caricature I can think of is." I don't know how many of y'all watched American Idol, but the first week of American Idol was the best. Because what happened was you had these people who had been told their entire life by their parents usually, oh my gosh, sweetie, you're the greatest singer. You are a gift to the world. You're amazing. You're wonderful. They've been told their entire life how amazing and wonderful they are. And then they show up in front of millions of Uh, people on the TV and three critical judges who remind them, actually, you're terrible. You need to take up bowling or something. Just close the thing that made the noises that just happened earlier. So they stand in front of here. So I think of encouragers, the caricature for me is the parents of those people in week one of American Idol. The people that just always said wonderful things. Oh, you're the greatest in the world. Or, or I think of it as people like, that just kind of like coast through life and the world may be shattering around them, but they're walking around with a smile. It's almost this naivety. There's always a beautiful, wonderful silver lining to each very dark cloud. That's another caricature that I think of. So if we're all supposed to take part in the Spirit's work and the Spirit's mission of encouraging, what does it look like for us to encourage? Some of us are going to be better than others. That's just part of it. But what does it look like? There's a couple things about encouragement that I want for us to know. The first one is this. It starts with generosity. So let's see what Barnabas does. You know, At the beginning, the last passage, the biographical information about Barnabas, it was a sentence fragment. So any of you who just felt the tension of of stopping in the middle of a sentence, I'm going to close that down for you. We're going to be okay. All right, so the next part. So it says, he's the Cyprian guy. Um, He's known as the son of encouragement. The next verse says this. And he, Barnabas, owned a tract of land. 
he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. The first act of ministry, like Barnabas was transformed by the gospel and the first thing that he does is he sells his land. Something that he was going to pass down to his children and his children's children and his children's children's children, it was going to be in the family. He just sells it. But then he doesn't just make a living, make a killing on the land. No, then he goes to the apostles and he lays all of his resources at their feet. His response to a transformed life by the gospel was radical generosity. Essentially, what he's saying is, apostles, I want to use all of my resources to undergird, undergird, to support what the Spirit is doing in and through you. I want to do everything that I can to support you, to help you lift off, to take off, to establish the church. So what does generosity have to do with encouragement? It's everything. It has everything to do with encouragement. As an example, I want you to think about I want you to think about somebody that you're in competition with. Now, I don't mean like we're both going for the same like we're both interviewing for the same job or we're on the same team or trying to figure out who uh, who the starter is and I want to be the best and blah blah blah. It's not that. That's not what I'm thinking of with competition. What I want you to do is I want you to imagine a person or a name in your mind Somebody that just their very existence, just their very life, shines a light on your particular insecurity. Like this is somebody who um, their life tends to be working out, and yours tends to not be working out. Uh, They tend to get asked out on dates, and you tend not to get asked out on dates. They tend to be better at their job or at school than you are. Their kids are better behaved than yours are. On and on the list goes. And so we have these people in our lives that kind of shine a light on our particular insecurities. Many times we have multiple. So do you have, do you have somebody in mind? And I get it. There's like a minority of y'all who are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know who's around me and I don't feel any competition. And that's fine. You have my permission to dissociate for a few minutes. Just come back and join us mentally at some point in the very near future. But so with that person in mind, I just want to ask, can you imagine getting into their life as Barnabas and with the resources that you've been given to now uplift them? So somebody who I already feel is way better than me, or I'm nervous that they're becoming better than me. Can you imagine actually using your resources to uplift them? No, (laughs) it's insane. Who would do that? No, instead, what do we do? We access a few skills in that situation with that particular person. Sometimes we withdraw from the person altogether, right? As we're filled with jealousy at what their life looks like, we withdraw from them. Sometimes we become uh, justifiers of ourselves. Like, well, yeah, they may be good, but they're not really that good. Look at what I'm good at. Or sometimes we become cynical about it. Or sometimes we're just so filled with bitterness and with jealousy, and we maybe even find other people that feel the same way about that particular person, right? And we huddle together. It's crazy divisive. But we're not the only ones to do it. This is very common. This is kind of all of our, many of our experiences. 
Uh, there's a there's a mentality uh, called a scarcity mentality. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with it. Brene Brown uh, made it popular in, in her book Daring Greatly. Uh, but what what she says and what the scarcity mentality is this: it is a demonic and sinful perspective belief that if you have something good, there isn't enough for me to have it also. There's not enough good for both of us. So my nervousness, so thinking about the person in mind, sometimes as I think about exalting them, I feel like while I'm simultaneously exalting them, I'm also communicating that I'm less. So I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, um, actually, what, five years now, I was starting to understand, I, I was running a ministry called Youth Impact, and I was starting to kind of feel that like, okay, it's time. Like I've taken this thing as far as I can go. Um, I'm not just given my talents and, and what I bring to the table. I'm not going to be able to take it much further, but there's still so much potential. So the Lord raised up somebody behind me, Micah Hovelman, who now runs the ministry. So when Micah comes in, I realize, oh my gosh, this guy is way better at stuff than I am. But I also got to realize oh, I'm also way better at stuff than he is. But what would a scarcity mentality toward Micah look like? Oh my gosh. I, I don't want to encourage him too much. You know, when they say, oh my gosh, why haven't we ever done this in Youth Impact before? I can either feel insecure about that and jealous, or I can say, oh my gosh, look how the Lord is using you. See, I think that if I encourage Micah in his leadership, I'm simultaneously saying that I was a bad leader. And that's just not true. So is the temptation for jealousy to be there? Am I tempted by a scarcity mentality? Am I tempted to not tell Micah what a great job he's doing in Youth Impact? Absolutely. But I can't do it. Because what happens is, when we hoard our encouragement through deeds and through words, when we hoard our encouragement because we have such a scarcity mentality, we actually do damage to others. Like, Micah is new in the role, and I'm here. I mean, he needs somebody to bounce things off of. To work through some problems. So for me to withhold and to isolate from him would actually disempower him and would be discouraging to him. But it's also discouraging and disempowering to me. Do you see how important, do you see how vital that first step of radical generosity is? It's the only way that we have the posture to enter into somebody else's life, even somebody that we're competitive with, to enter into their life, to bring our resources, our talents, our deeds, our words, to uplift them. It has to start with generosity. What else does it look like? It looks like telling the truth. So encouragement can look a few different ways. One, encouragement can say, hey, Ryan, Oh, that was such a good sermon. Wow. The illustrations that you gave were amazing. You didn't go on tangents the whole time. You brought something out in the word that just really made me evaluate, oh my gosh, where does my life match up with what the Christian life is supposed to look like? That, that definitely, that looks really nice. That's one part of encouragement. That's not all encouragement is. Encouragement is also this. <laughs> Hey, Ryan, like, I see what you were trying to do, <laughs> um, but man, you were kind of all over the place. Uh, I didn't really understand your opening illustration. I counted 37 ums and uhs that you said during that time. I received these all, by the way, so this is not like 
make believe. <laughs> so, so encouragement looks like both of these things. So the first, the first aspect, I want to focus on this one. First aspect of encouragement is it can be uh, used to reinforce, to invigorate, to bear up, and to motivate. And es- essentially, it's this: Hey, you're on the right path, and you're doing these things really well. Keep going. Keep going on the path that's set in front of you. You're doing things really, really well. Specifically, these things you're doing well. Keep pushing forward. But also, the other side of it is encouragement is you're, you're on the path. You need to reorient yourself. You need to watch out for these rocks. Or a warning, you're not on the right path. Get off of this one. Get on to another one. And both of these things are demonstrated in the New Testament and are demonstrated through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's see the first one. In Acts 11, 23 and 24, it says this. Then when he, we're talking about Barnabas, son of encouragement. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage. There's that word, pericaleo again. And began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. What happened here? So as happens in Acts, the apostles go out. And they share the gospel. They introduce people into the, uh, to the risen Jesus. So they would place their faith and their trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and for abundant life. They're introducing all these people to it. Yes, it's accompanied by tongues of fire and miraculous healings and stuff like that. That, that is all happening there. So these people in all the cities they go to, they're so captivated by the gospel. And it changes everything. But then they got to go back to real life. They were living in darkness, and now they're in light. So when they were living in darkness, they had a set of patterns that they would follow. Their job, their worldview, the way they raised their children, the way they interacted with their slaves, all of these things. But then they realized, because of the gospel, all of these things change. Not out of duty, but out of pure and abundant and true life. And so they waver, right? This is a reality for all of us. They start to waver. Oh, oh my gosh, did I really sign up for this? But here you have Barnabas rejoicing at the work that the Lord is doing. It says he encouraged them with resolute heart. With resolute heart. He encouraged them with specificity. He's saying, this is faithfulness. State you're doing great. Stay on the path. Keep walking faithfully with Jesus with a resolute heart. This is how to do it. He had specific encouragement to give to them. Sometimes if people come up to me and they say, hey, Ryan, good job on whatever it is. That doesn't say anything. That means overall, generally speaking, you think more favorably than unfavorably of whatever it is than I did. But with a resolute heart, no, there's some intentionality. There's some purpose with the way that he's encouraging them with faithfulness to the gospel and faithfulness to Jesus. So that's one aspect of encouragement. Let's think about the other one. The other way that we tell the truth. It's to admonish, to convict, to warn, to redirect, and to urge. So what does this look like? We have an example in Paul. In uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth, they just had all kinds of weird stuff that was happening. People were just trying to figure out how not to do these awful sins. But you have this particular guy here um, that, he, that he's talking about. And he goes, uh, he's talking to the church. He writes a letter to the church. And he says, all right, look, um, so we don't know what this guy, this particular guy did. We're, we're not sure. It doesn't seem to be too egregious. Like, I, I get the sense that he was just excessively annoying. Like, nobody liked him, and he would do stuff that would just make people mad. So the church, with 100% unity, they said, okay, this is the consequence for this guy. We want the consequence to be this. 
And it seemed to work because he was broken. He was filled with sorrow because of the consequence. So what does Paul say? Sufficient for this guy, for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, hey, look, the punishment fit the crime. You have given him the right consequence. It's accomplished exactly what you want for it to accomplish. So the pendulum has swung down to justice. Justice and love. You've done really, really well. But he's saying the pendulum is still swinging, Corinthian church. Now now we're moving toward revenge. No, this guy is beating himself up. He's excessively, I'm nervous that he's going to be excessively sorrowful. Move it back. Redirect your path. I admonish you. I urge you. It says here, go back to center. Affirm him of love for him. He says, wherefore, I urge, I pericaleo you to reaffirm your love for him. So what did he do? He said, you're on this path. You got to tweak it though to the church. So this concept of telling the truth, uh, looking like wonderful gumdrops and lollipops, and you're doing these things amazing, or, hey, I got to admonish you. I got to redirect you. We're all supposed to play both of these roles, but one of them's really, really comfortable for us, right? It's different for some of us. So we have some people in here that's like, I love being the encourager. I want to be the cheerleader. I, I'm, I know how to get to people's hearts, to really inspire them. Um, I know how to just watch somebody do a complete train wreck, and I know how to still find the positive thing that they did and to encourage that one tiny thing hidden under the mess above. I'm gifted with that. This is a camp, by the way, that I, I love to hang out in. But do you know what the problem with that is? I think as I've gotten older, I've started to learn this. I don't trust people like this. Because I, you're not going to be honest with me. You're going to tell me one part of the truth. If I deliver a train wreck in whatever capacity that is, parenting, work, whatever, you're just going to tell me the good stuff. I can't trust you. Yes, you'll be my cheerleader, and that's awesome. If that's all I've got out of you, it's not helpful to me. No, so we got to bounce over here. But some of us in here, we, we're like, nobody loves being the admonisher. Like nobody's going to run. Oh, I'll, I'll call someone out. I'm on it. But what I hear from people is, oh, I've got no problem calling people out. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with evaluating. I'm okay with redirecting. And so this becomes a very easy spot for us to camp out in. It's easy for us to find something in somebody's life where, they're short, where, they're, where their shortcomings are best experienced and expressed. And just to address that. But what happens with people that camp out here? Well, sure, I trust you. <laughs> You're going to be honest with me, brutally, in fact. But I don't feel safe with you. I'm not going to ask for your help. If I know that what's going to be on the other side is just a beatdown, a criticism of what you think and how I need to be better, I'm not going to you. One is silenced because of dishonesty, and the other is silenced because of a lack of love, perceived love. So what's the goal for all of us? To to be people who are known as sons and daughters of encouragement? What's the balance for us? What's to have one foot in each world? Right? 
depending on the situation, we contribute, we encourage, we take part in what the Holy Spirit is doing in another person's life. And sometimes we motivate and sometimes we redirect. Finally, for encouragement, we're generous. We have a posture of generosity. We speak the truth. Those two things already are challenging. Thanks, Barnabas. And then we move to the next one. Presence is key. Presence is like everything. When we think about the ministry of Barnabas, most of what we know is what he did with Paul. Paul's going from town to town doing these amazing things. And Barnabas is right there next to him the whole way on, the, on his first mission trip. I came to Acts 14 a couple of years ago, and um, I don't know if y'all have ever read through the book of Acts, but there's like, there's some sci-fi stuff going on in there. It's, it's real, it's true, but it's like so, oh my gosh, unbelievable. Um, and so like my threshold for the unbelievable was, was pretty high. But then a few years ago, I read Acts 14, and I had one of those moments where I was like, oh no, this is unbelievable. So the story goes uh, in Acts 14, um, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas and others, they're going from town to town, as they do, sharing the gospel. Some respond with just like fan club, and it's amazing. And they respond to the gospel, they're transformed, they become disciples, but others pick up stones. They're so angry with the message of the gospel that they want to end the messengers. So they go to this uh, town called Iconium, or Iconium, and, uh, and the same thing happens. Fan club haters happens. They catch wind that the people there wanted to kill them, the apostles. And so they leave. They go to a town called Lystra. Again, they step in, share the gospel, as you do. People believe, people oppose, but what was interesting, what happened was, the people from Iconium, who had threatened to kill them, Follow them to this town of Lystra. And when they heard the gospel, they picked up stones and they hurled them at Paul, stoned him, dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. And Paul, he's got his disciples around him. He kind of like gets up again, left for dead. He gets up, kind of, I don't know, brushes himself off and he walks right back into the city gates. And he recuperates for a little while. He's got the apostles with him. And then he goes to a town to recover, again, sharing the gospel there. But do you know what he did right after that? This is insane. He goes with Barnabas right back to Iconium. The people that had chased him down, the people that had followed him, that had tried to kill him, he goes to their hometown after having been left for dead. He goes right back to encourage the disciples and tell them, hey, tribulation's coming. (laughs) See the scars in, in the blood. Tribulation is coming. Stand fast. So in this story, who gets the glory? Well, Paul does. Of course Paul does. Paul's the mouthpiece. Paul's the person we're reading about. But who is right next to him? Barnabas. I and others would argue that Barnabas, Paul Paul receives the glory, but Barnabas was the strength. Barnabas was right there with him, encouraging him along the way. Hey, this is the path for us to go down, Paul. Hey, Paul, this is not the path for us. They're going to dispute that later. This is not the path for us. We need to go this way instead. 
But all the while, he's present. He's right next to Paul, undergirding and strengthening the mission of Paul. Our presence is powerful. Have you ever been in somebody's life or you know somebody that's just, they've been through it. They're grieving. They're, um, uh, they, they just, life has beat them up, has kicked them upside the head. And they're in deep grief and deep trauma. Do you know what the greatest act that you can do in their life? It would be to see them sitting down, beaten down, and to come up next to them and to sit with them and to stay and to remain with them in their grief. To live out what James says of being quick to listen and slow to speak. And you sit with them. It is a gift. We see this presence through Christ himself. Christ said, hey, if y'all are encouraged in the spirit, if you have consolation, have the same attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who became present to humanity. God himself present in the pain and the muck and the mire of humanity sits down beside us, dies the death that we, that we deserve and rises again and then calls us to have the same posture that he had. Friends, the greatest thing that we can do to somebody who's in pain and who's suffering is to sit next to them and to know and to discern. Sometimes the encouragement looks like telling the truth in that moment, but man, you got to lay a foundation of being present to them. I had a, um, I had a professor in seminary that said the greatest thing uh, that you can do whenever somebody is suffering, enduring hardship and trial is um, to show up and to shut up. I'm sorry, kids. It's, you don't say that at home. You show up and you close your mouth. Don't say that either. All right, so that's the greatest gift that you have to offer to somebody that's enduring hardship. So is there somebody in your life right now that just needs a peaceful presence, that needs somebody to sit with them and just to listen, to not try to fix, to not try to give them that these are the right words, they're going to take away the pain. These are the words when you're asking, why did this happen? These are the words that are going to answer that. There's never an answer for why things happen that's sufficient. They just need somebody that's going to sit next to them. Do the work in their lives. So our challenge this morning is for all of us to be known as people, to have the reputation of being someone who is an encourager, someone that tells the truth, someone that's present. So for those of you... um, who don't feel this way. So here's the litmus test. If I were to go up to your coworkers, uh, to your family, um, to just anybody that's close to you in your life, and I said, hey, what's, what are 10 adjectives that you would use to describe you? Would something along the lines of encouraging be named of you? And so if not, then the purpose isn't for you to be condemned. The purpose for, is for you to say, oh, I need to tweak that. Okay, so that's the, that's the message for some of us. Some of us, we have a scarcity mindset. And we need to exchange our jealousies for gratitude and generosity. Going back to my story with Micah, where I could have chosen to be uh, completely jealous and filled with insecurity, where I could withhold encouragement to him, you know what I need to do? Oh my gosh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for raising up Micah at such a time that I was kind of withdrawing. Thank you, Lord, that the ministry wasn't turned over to somebody who's less competent than me. What an injustice that would be to the ministry. 
Thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you've given Micah and how they're going to be lavished upon youth impact. So I trade my jealousy, my insecurity, my scarcity for gratitude and for generosity enter into his life. And then finally, for those of you, people have been through it in the last few weeks in our, in our, in our congregation specifically and in our community. Do you know somebody who's just been through it? And you're reluctant to show up in their life because you don't know what to say. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't have the words to say. What if they ask me that question about why did God allow this thing to happen in my life? What if they ask that question and I don't have an answer for? That, that's awesome that you don't have an answer for that. What's needed is your attention, is your presence. So three things. I think that hits most all of us in this room. And so our prayer is going to be that we would be known as people in Grace Bible Church, but more importantly as believers in Christ, that we would be known in our community and our world as sons and daughters of encouragement. Y'all bow your heads. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the model of Barnabas. Thank you for the many ways that just through his presence, um, through his truth-telling, that he showed us what it looks like to live in this world, to gird one another up and empower and equip brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for him showing us how we participate with the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. Thank you. Lord, can you help us to know where we stand? Can you help us to have reputations as being sons and daughters of encouragement? Can you help us to tell the truth? Can you help us to be present with people in difficulty? Lord, help us. And thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to do these things. We give thanks for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, y'all are dismissed. Have a good Sunday.